This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth and Isabel Hub. So late last night, a member of the government, the Deputy Chief Whip, in fact, Chris Pincher, resigned from his role in the most unsavoury circumstances. Isabel, tell us what we know. So it was a story in The Sun that uh, Deputy Chief Whip had resigned in a letter to the, to the Prime Minister, confessing that he had... I'll read the uh, what the letter opened with. Dear Prime Minister, last night I drank far too much. I've embarrassed myself and other people, which is the last thing I want to do, and I apologise to those concerned. Now, what that um, embarrassing behaviour entailed was that he allegedly groped two men drunkenly at the Carlton Club on Wednesday night and according to one witness quoted by playbook uh, politico playbook he was clearly trying to seduce several young men now one of the things that i think that there's a number of significant things here and we can talk about why conservatives and why mps uh, continue to behave in this way but one thing I think has changed is that a number of MPs who were present were horrified by the way he'd behaved and complained to the Whip's office. And I think this is a sign of a shift in the way that MPs respond to other MPs' behaviour. And we saw that with the Neil Parrish scandal as well, which was triggered by two MPs standing up in a meeting and saying, I've seen someone watching pornography in the House of Commons chamber, and I think that's wrong. And I think a few years ago, um, and this is appears to be the case for, for a number of MPs, you'd have names of people who were known to behave improperly, who were often witnessed to behave improperly, but no one did anything about it. And my hope is that this means that improper behaviour is not something that is considered normal for Westminster. James Be that as it may, if it's things are improving now, Politico today is reporting that actually the Prime Minister was made aware of Chris Pincher's history of behaviours like this all the way back in February and has still appointed him to this government role. What do you make of that? Well, I think this is more difficult for the government than Neil Parrish. Neil Parrish was a backbench MP who didn't have a government role and was found to be kind of looking at pornography. And I think it is fair to say... I don't think it was known that he was kind of previously had been doing this. The Chris Pincher situation is different because Chris Pincher resigned from the government in 2017 over behaviour that is not entirely dissimilar to this incident. We know that people said to number 10, are you sure you want to put him in the whip's office where obviously they are in charge of party discipline, including this kind of behaviour. Now, you know, the Deputy Chief Whip's role is such, but if this had been any other MP who had behaved in the Carlton Club, in normal times, the Deputy Chief Whip is who would have been deputed to deal with it. And so I think that is problematic. And I think the issue for the government now is Neil Parrish you know, lost the whip, resigned from his job as an, M- as an MP. And obviously people are saying, well, if that's what he did in this circumstance what happens here. I mean, this is a very, very difficult situation for the government. 
As well, the government is saying that, well, actually, some number 10 sources today apparently are saying that the no investigation is needed because Chris Pincher has already resigned. But is that a tenable position to hold over the coming days? Do you think it could get bigger and bigger, not just for Chris Pincher, but also for uh, Boris Johnson's position? Yeah, so the briefing that uh, no further action is required because he's done the right thing and fallen on his sword. I mean, uh, as, as you suggest i'm not sure this line is going to hold um because that's not how justice and accountability should work where you have someone who's done something wrong who then decides what the fit punishment is for themselves which is is, is what is basically being suggested here i mean you you know you don't get that in 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 a court case do you where someone who's been found guilty has their lawyer stand up and say, well, they feel very bad about it now. Uh, so could you give them a nice sentence, please, judge? That, you know, that doesn't wash in in a court of law, and I don't think it should wash um, in the court of public opinion either. And as James outlined, there are a number of specific problems with this uh, being around the uh, deputy chief whip. I think it also just brings back to the fore the issue of parties and uh, Labour are trying to say this is a specific Conservative Party problem. I, I don't think it is. I think it's a Westminster problem, actually, where you have the, the parties leaving their all their pastoral work to the whip's office and possibly with some unsuitable individuals doing that. But also it's an unsuitable arrangement generally because whips enforce discipline uh, and, you know, they, they weaponise their knowledge of MPs against those MPs at times. And it also means, on the flip side, that you get people raising concerns about MPs and the party hierarchy decides that this is just going to go in the too difficult box because that person's useful to them. And so I think what is likely, as is always the case with these stories, is that you get day two, day three, day four of whether it's allegations... uh, you know, other allegations against other people or allegations about the way in which parties handle things um, and then it widens out and other parties get dragged in. I always think it's a very dangerous game for uh, any party to start pointing at the one that's under scrutiny for these behavioural issues because so often it comes back to bite them within days. That's really interesting as well, because from the face of it, it does seem like it's more of a Conservative Party issue. If you just look at the names that have come out over the last few years, you had Imran Ahmad Khan, you had Neil Parrish, David Warburton, Andrew Griffiths, Charlie Elphick, Rob Roberts. James, is it not a Conservative Party problem? I think Isabel is right that you can't say this is the problem confined to one particular political party. Just look at the trouble that the SNP's Westminster group have have recently had. And I think there is a problem with Westminster because there are all of these events that are both work and socialising. They are often kind of lubricated by alcohol and there are often unhealthy power dynamics at play of a kind of you know the, you know this is, politics is a is a is a business where to get on you not only need to be good at your job but but part of being good at your job is getting on with people and that can create i think unhealthy dynamics and problematic situations i i think there is also a kind of uh, and i think i think isabel is right there is an interesting aspect here of the fact that other mps who were present were horrified by what had happened and and kind of in part reported i think because there is also a kind of element in westminster that kind of oh 
don't be too harsh. That person just had a few too many and these kind of things happen when people, you know, that kind of element. And so I think that you need to kind of fix those problems. And then there is also a kind of, there is also an issue as, as, as well, which is however regrettable it is, I think we can probably think of instances in nearly every single party where when push comes to shove, the party, in, in inverted commas, has trumped what anyone would consider to be best practice in HR terms. It turns out that someone is too useful, too good at their job to be disciplined. And I think in some ways you can argue that one of, Chris, one of the reasons that Chris Pincher's previous resignation was not the end of his career was he was very effective at what he did. And, you know, when Boris Johnson was in terrible political trouble uh, at the beginning of this year, Chris Pincher was one of the people who went round with MPs and kind of saved his premiership at that point. And I think this is the problem, which is, you know, you know, said saw something similar play out with Chris Rennard, the Liberal Democrats, you know, someone who was exceptionally good at what they did and therefore some odd, unappealing behaviours were kind of turned a blind eye to because that person had a particular talent. I think this is... This is a problem of politics, which is that, that people become sufficiently tribal that they put the party in inverted commas above what they should do on an ethical basis. And on a, well, more serious, but also not ne- any necessarily less depressing note, um, Isabel, today is also the 25th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong to China. I was a child in China when, when the handover happened in the 90s. And I think the feeling I had then to well, the feeling I have today, looking at the situation for the city 25 years on is completely different. Boris Johnson has made some comments about this. Isabel, tell us what he said. So he has uh, said that Britain is not giving up on Hong Kong um, and has accused China of failing to keep um, its promises uh, since the uh, handover. So uh, he's given a video message uh, where he said we made a promise to the territory and its people and we intend to keep it doing all we can to hold China to its commitments. We simply cannot afford the uh, we simply cannot avoid the fact that for some time now Beijing has been failing to comply uh, with its obligations. Uh, and so uh, I think we've seen over the past few days um, uh, leading figures in the government just reminding us um, that Russia is not the only problem. Um, we've had Liz Truss uh, saying that Western countries need to do more uh, to enable Taiwan to defend itself. Uh, we now have Boris Johnson um, accusing China of, of of not meeting its commitments. And uh, you know, we, we've covered this and you've covered this extensively um, in The Spectator, Cindy, the the, the change in rhetoric um, from the Conservative government over the past decade towards uh, China. And uh, understandably and necessarily, there has been a lot more talk about Russia recently, but it's a reminder of the of the number of big global risks that there are at the moment. James, Boris Johnson was one of those in government, I thought, who was slightly more dovish on China. If you look at the way he behaved over the Huawei row, really kind of dragging his feet until he couldn't anymore. But is as well right in saying that, you know, is he, is he going to be ever more hawkish now? Is that position ever less tenable? I, I think British politics is, is, is structurally moving into a more hawkish position on China because, first of all, there is the fact that, you know, the most important security relationship for the UK is its relationship with the US 
and the US and China are becoming steadily more involved in 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 in, in not in, in 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 increasingly aggressive great power competition. Then there is the fact that you know another country that the UK feels exceptionally close to is Australia. Australia has gone from having a, a very vibrant economic relationship with China, trying to kind of hedge between the US and China to, you know, to, to basically signing a deal with the US and the UK to buy nuclear submarines because it's so worried about China. You have had Canada, another country that the UK coordinates with very closely, having, you know, some of its systems essentially held hostage in, a, in, a, in, in the Huawei dispute. And so the UK is moving into a more hawkish position on China. And I also think that, you know, if you think in cynical electoral terms, mm-hmm. nearly every group you can think of in the UK is hawkish on on China now. You know, if you think of manufacturing, you know, they are fed up with intellectual property theft, unfair competitive practice. If you think of, you know, green-inclined voters, they are keen on carbon border adjustment mechanism and the like to deal with the fact that China and global warming and pollution and... And then security-inclined voters obviously worry about that. And then add in the fact that, you know, the the, the amount of um, BNO passport holders coming to the UK. I mean, you can see the UK moving into a steadily more hawkish position on China. And it's also... David Cameron and George Osborne got a lot wrong. It is also true that China has become a more authoritarian state since 2010. You can't say, which you could... I've just about argued in 2010 that, yes, it's slow, but China is gradually becoming more liberal. That that argument is now impossible to make. And I think we probably are going to live... In the next 10 years, I think the, the, what, the, you know, the biggest known unknown in global politics in the next 10 years is what happens with China and Taiwan. Mm-hmm. I, I think that kind of Hal Brand's argument that China is a peaking power, which has a limited window in which to try and change the kind of facts on the ground, and we'll try and take that is almost certainly true. And I think one of the things we don't talk about enough in British politics is if the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the sanctions that have followed has been an economic shock. It is an economic shock, a a fraction, a tenth at most, of the size of the economic shock that would follow China China blockading or invading Taiwan and the sanctions that would follow from that. You know, we underappreciate, I think, how after China's entry into the WTO, the, the world had a deflationary shock. If we get full-on, full-fat decoupling, as I think we would do if China either blockaded or took Taiwan, that would be an inflationary shock all the larger because of how intertwined China is with the global economy. Well, I just hope that in the coming years, the British government doesn't lose its understanding of China, as this week um, revealed by Mr. Steerpike on Coffee House, that Liz Truss has cut funding for the Great British China Centre, which was one of those arm's-length uh, foreign office uh, institutions that helped people in the UK understand China. James and Isabel, thanks very much for joining Coffee House Shorts. Spectator Economic Innovator of the Year Awards, sponsored by Investech, are open for entries. If you are an entrepreneur-led business bringing radical change to its sector, please apply at www.spectator/innovator. We are looking for entries all across the UK, and our closing date is the 4th of July.